There's thousands and thousands and thousands of projects throughout the world for the people in the emergency. But there are very few people who are there to dismantle the problem. I'm here to prevent the next generation of bigger shoe vendors. Do you hear me? Hi, I'm Peter Drobak, and you're listening to Reimagine, stories from social entrepreneurs on the front lines of positive change around the world. In this episode, we're looking at homelessness. Homelessness is an example of what we sometimes call a wicked problem, a complex, messy problem with many causes, contradictory forces, and no easy solutions. Wicked problems are rooted in broken systems. While it's hard to get accurate figures, it's estimated that 150 million people, or 2% of the world's population, are homeless. But many more, perhaps one in five people worldwide, may lack adequate and secure housing. And while the causes are many, homelessness affects rich and poor countries alike. Take California where homeless shantytowns known as tent cities have been growing in the shadows of gleaming tech company headquarters. The juxtaposition of such extreme inequality in what is, by GDP, the richest state in the richest country in the world is staggering. Homelessness is also a problem close to home here in Oxford, which has one of the highest levels of homeless deaths anywhere in the UK. Across Britain, an unprecedented number of people are without a home or living on the streets. That number has actually doubled since 2010 and continues to trend upward. The same is true in much of Europe. So what will it take to shift the status quo on homelessness? Let's start with a report from the front line of care for homeless people during the pandemic. The COVID-19 crisis has affected all of us But there hasn't been enough talk about the impact of things like social distancing on the most vulnerable. How can you shelter in place if you don't have a stable home? Sarah Emerson is a health engagement worker for Just Life, an organization advocating for and working with vulnerable people living in temporary accommodation. She sent us this field report from Brighton. I've just come from an emergency accommodation. I'm currently on Brighton Seafront. I was seeing a person who we are supporting by giving uh, hot meals to, and I've just actually dropped off a tablet to him because we've been given some funding to help people have access to technology and access to the internet so that they can be more informed with what's going on and so they can have more contact with the outside world, if you like. So the idea for him is that he will be able to contact his family and see their faces as opposed to just over a phone um, because he doesn't have a smartphone. So the impact of COVID-19 is quite significant on our client group. The people that we work with all have complex health needs, and so lots of them are in the shielding category. We can see clients to some degree, although from a, from a safe distance, we wear PPE. Particularly at the beginning, I find it quite difficult because I feel like it feels quite offensive to keep people at a distance. Of course, it's for their health and mine, but it feels quite cruel for people who are chronically lonely, maybe suicidal, feeling really low, feeling really isolated. They're all in 
emergency or temporary accommodation, which is often just one room with no proper cooking facilities. The one I've just come from has about 40 people living in it. There's no way of avoiding the fact that everyone touches the same things. There are other emergency accommodations that have 100 people living in them that are quite similar in the sense that there are people coming and going all the time, handles everywhere. You just have no control over those sorts of spaces if you live in them. All you have is your room. Um, And so when we talk about these people, we still refer to them as homeless, even though they have a roof. But what they have is so limited. And actually, that's not a place that you can live in long term. Our rough sleepers in the city have been placed in hotels, which is good. It's great that they're indoors, but actually they also aren't places that are homes. They're not long term solutions. It's just somewhere for now to try and keep them safe, well and alive at this point. And I think there's there's some stuff that we've been tapping into that from the government that has been good, some extra funding for various things. I'm hoping that the long-term impact will be that the government will have some more level of understanding of what our clients' needs are. And actually, there might be more money, resource put into housing and, and mental health stuff where we're constantly finding that there just isn't enough. I think it'll be interesting what happens afterwards when lockdown's over, whether the, what happens to people who have been placed in the hotels. But I think that's a kind of wait and see sort of thing. Nothing that I know of has been said about that yet. Sarah Emerson there from Just Life. The coronavirus lockdown has had the short-term benefit of getting people off the streets and into temporary housing. But that's an emergency measure, not a solution and it may be further isolating people already on the margins of society. This could be a moment to really change things if, for once, we could get beyond short-termism. We're going to have a fascinating conversation with Lord John Byrd, whose own lived experience with homelessness helped him to redefine how we think about the problem. And he's now on a mission to inject some long-termism into government. But first, let's dig deeper into the problem with Dr. Elizabeth Garrett from the Sheffield Methods Institute. Beth co-leads a research project exploring people's experiences of homelessness here in Oxford. Beth begins by defining our terms, because homeless people aren't just those sleeping on the streets. We have rough sleeping or unsheltered homelessness as the most extreme manifestation. Um, But we've also got in much larger numbers people who are what's called hidden homeless. So they might be staying with a friend or family member, sometimes long term, um, in quite an insecure way. And we've also got people who are what's called statutory homeless, which means that they're designated as eligible for government assistance. Um, And some of those people are staying in sort of temporary accommodation, including sort of B&Bs and other quite unsuitable accommodation. This is the sort of experience of homelessness that often doesn't really get very much attention, that we don't see these people on street corners or sleeping in a park. And so it can be easy to forget that they exist, although they are also a very vulnerable group themselves. So let's talk about what's driving the problem, what what the root causes are. You've been studying this for a number of years, and particularly uh, in the community here in, in Oxford, where homelessness is a really significant problem. So what have you learned about uh, the root causes that are driving the issue? Sure. So first, I should say that the project that I did in Oxford quite recently um, was with a colleague who I worked with very closely. Um, it was Dr. Jan Flaherty. So what we found about the root causes, there's probably two 
key root causes and they are poverty and trauma and though those causes are quite interrelated so in terms of poverty we see that housing um, and the affordability of housing is really important particularly in a city like Oxford which is very expensive to live people didn't always have great work options so were either working in low-wage jobs and or in very insecure jobs where they may may not have had a, a reliable wage and the combination of sort of low wages and unaffordable housing meant that some people really found difficulties in sustaining a tenancy. The other side of the coin is trauma and in this project many of our participants had witnessed quite difficult separations between their parents. Several of them had been bereaved um, generally of a parent at a young age other families were really sort of under a lot of pressure due to family illness and mental health problems, which meant that families were often quite fragmented under a lot of pressure and sort of struggling to stay together and to thrive. These sort of themes came up time and time again with the people we interviewed. Well, that's that's really fascinating. So the, so the, the seeds of this are planted almost a generation in advance, it sounds like, at least in some cases. Yeah, in some cases. So, for example, one of our participants, um, he was 60 at the time that we interviewed him. His dad had been a bus driver, but became very unwell and had to stop work. Um, His mum was working double shifts to financially support the family. And him and his siblings were caring for his father while his mother was working. And as this quite difficult situation progressed, this participant who we called Phil, he sort of started getting in trouble at school and with the law as a sort of young teenager. And although he didn't become homeless until quite a lot later in life, just this really sort of fragmented upbringing, he'd spent time in young offenders institutions and later in prison. Although he had worked, it had been in quite unstable ways. He'd travelled around the country and his sort of life was just very unstable, really. And I think we could really trace that back to sort of family poverty. And I keep thinking, you know, if if his family had had better support, if there had been carers or nurses who were able to come and look after his father, if there had been financial support so that his mum hadn't had to work until two in the morning to sort of keep the roof over their heads, how things might have worked out differently for them and their family. Mm. So those are some of the root causes. When did homelessness become a problem here in the UK and why? I would say that probably from the start of the 80s and a lot of the changes to welfare that were put in place since then, the supports available for people who aren't entirely self-sufficient in terms of being able to hold down a well-paid job and pay their rent in full and on time every month, those sorts of supports have really diminished over time. So the huge loss of social housing means that now people who, who need social housing, including people who are homeless at that point it's very very difficult to secure and some of our participants had secured social housing in the past and then maybe a decade later that wasn't an option that was open to them anymore because just the scarcity of it in Oxford it's guessed that their waiting list for social housing is 12 years so Mm. for many people they didn't even attempt to secure housing in that way work has also become much more precarious so you know, maybe two generations ago when people in Oxford, you know, working class people could work at the manufacturing plants or doing sort of manual jobs based around the university and the colleges and they would not be wealthy by any stretch, but they would be adequately paid 
they knew that they would be able to retire with a pension. Um, that sort of certainty has gone. So it's not just that wages are, le- are worth less than they used to be, but also that you don't know how much you're getting paid and when and how long that will last for. Um, and finally, the value of benefits has really diminished over time. So in the last decade, the value of housing benefit has dropped hugely so that people have to make up quite a considerable shortfall between their rental payments and the housing benefit they receive. Um, for people on job seekers allowance or sickness related benefits, the amount that's going into people's pockets is a lot less than it used to be. And so just the ability to escape poverty and to sort of keep a secure home around you is is very much diminished at the moment. Yeah. And now, of course, we seem to be on the precipice of another economic crisis, which is only going to make this worse. Can we talk about what the UK government's strategy is to address this problem? What I've seen during the current COVID-19 crisis has been very much a late to the game, reactive kind of approach from governments rather than kind of proactive and trying to tackle root causes. Is that something that's a broader trend in the way that government is addressing social and economic problems in your experience? Yeah, I think it is. And I think just the the framing of it as we're tackling homelessness means that we generally look to intervene at the point that people are already homeless or very, very close to becoming homeless. And as I mentioned before, the, the research project that we undertook had this life course perspective. And what that revealed was that often, you know, decades before people actually became homeless or precariously housed they were sort of picking up these difficult life experiences or experiencing you know poor education and things like that that sort of cumulatively affected people's likelihood of becoming homeless now that doesn't mean to say that you know not having a great education means that you're destined to become homeless but I think certainly there doesn't seem to be an appreciation that perhaps we might be able to predict some people who are at risk of homelessness based on other experiences in their lives, um, rather than waiting until we sort of get to that crisis point. Mm. So we hear that this is a problem that if anything is getting worse uh, over the last couple of decades rather than better, yet there's so much energy and goodwill and resources being poured into solving the homelessness crisis. Why do you think the problem is not getting any better? I think, again, it relates to your sort of description of the current response being very reactive, that, you know, we have amazing charitable organisations and volunteers who give up an awful lot of time and energy to support homeless people, but it is ultimately quite limited, you know, running a a soup kitchen or, or a winter night shelter and things, you know, they're huge undertakings, but they're not ultimately able to change, you know, the situation that prompts people to become homeless we know that there's a huge range of issues there and they're also you know by no means sufficient to find a home for someone and to help them sustain that home and they're sort of very much in the meantime type activities that can keep people fed that can keep them off the streets in winter and they are extremely valuable for doing that but the sort of structural causes of homelessness are so enormous compared with what this goodwill and good energy can provide that it's inevitable that they're only really a drop in the ocean. So if we're stuck, how do we become unstuck? Well, now we're going to meet someone with a big idea or two. He was born into poverty in a slum in post-war London. He was homeless aged five and spent three years in an orphanage 
followed by periods in prison where he learned to read and write. He went on to found one of the most recognizable social projects in the UK and the world's most successful street magazine, The Big Issue. Put together by professional journalists, it's sold by people living on the street who get to keep half its cover price. Its philosophy is to give people a hand up, not a hand out. And the man is John Bird, now Lord John Bird, the first person who once worked in the canteen of the Houses of Parliament to be given a seat in the House of Lords. I began by asking Lord Bird about his own experience of homelessness. I was born into a London Irish family in Notting Hill, which is a pretty posh sort of place now, but it was in the late 40s or the mid 40s. It was a, a place of great privation. So I was born into a slum. My parents were not particularly good at being parents. They liked to drink and smoke and go out. So we were homeless. There was five of us at the time, uh, homeless at five, six, and seven. Then I was put into an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage, and I was there for three years. Then I came out, and then I was getting in trouble with the police, so I then started to run away and sleep rough, and that went on for until I got arrested at various times in my life, and then I'd run away from there and all that. So I spent kind of 10 years in and out of homelessness. So I was never one of those persons who had mental health problems or drink problems. I was always a person who used the streets as a place to hide from the police, from authority, and from my parents. So it's very different. So we need to understand that there are all sorts of reasons why people end up homeless. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so often with a problem like homelessness, we react to the the symptoms of seeing... Um, rough sleepers, and that leads to interventions like building more shelters and more beds to get people off the streets. Based on your experience, why do those approaches often fall short? Well, they often don't fall short. If you were a homeless person and someone came up to you and said, look, I see you're sleeping down by a bin there in the high street. I've got a place for you where you can go. You know, you can wash, you can have somewhere to eat, you have a place to go to the toilet, which is very important. That's the success, and people don't understand that level of success is a sign of our civilization, mm. that we don't want to see our children or other people's children in that situation. And I would never, never turn my back against that form of emergency response. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing is that a lot of people then institutionalize that and then they say okay so what we've got to do is just pick johnny mary charlie bert out of the streets and put them in a place that's when it goes wrong so when you institutionalize you when you turn it into a system that's when madness sets in that's mm. when you find you spend billions and billions of pounds governments in the united states and the, and the U uk and throughout europe have spent more money on poverty than if you'd given everybody $100,000. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of madness. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that I work with people in the big issue. They've been in local authority care. Sometimes they've been in prison. Sometimes they've been in the army. And you look at it and there's, you know, a million pounds spent on getting them to being a 
17 or 18 year old or a 20 year old selling the big issue. They haven't produced anything. Mm -hmm. So they are people who we should be allowing to develop and produce and build their lives, but they have not been allowed to do it, largely because the financial way that we deal with poverty is a reflection of that kind of, oh, let's just get them out the streets. Let's just give them a handout. Mm -hmm. And it's never worked. Yeah. So the, the motto of the big issue is, uh, you know, to give a hand up, not a handout. Let's talk a little about the origins of the big issue. So dating back to the early 1990s, um, where were you and what were you doing and, and how did the big issue come about? So I kind of got myself sorted out and married for the second time and had children because I'd had a child at the age of 18 when I first came out of prison. And I got myself into a situation, I got to the end of my 30s, the beginning of my 40s, and I thought, I've got to do something kind of useful. And lo and behold, I saw a guy on the TV. This is a guy called Gordon Roddick. And him and his wife had become multimillionaires because they started the body shop. And it was extraordinary because I'd known him when he had no money. We used to argue over who had the biggest broken nose. I rang him up and I said to him, you know, Gordon, you know, it's John Bird. He said, oh, you're, are you one of the persons who climbs out of the woodwork when somebody makes a shed load of money? And I said, yep. He said, well, I know where you're coming from. So anyway, we, we started working together. We started doing a number of things together. But then he was in New York in 1990 and he was walking through Manhattan and there was this bloke. The guy said to him, he said, would you like to buy a copy of my street paper? So Gordon started talking, he said, why are you doing this? He said, well, I've been in the penitentiary on and off most of my life, I'm 54. The next time they'll throw the key away. I've been homeless, I've been a drunk, I've been this, that and the other. And Gordon thought this was absolutely brilliant. So he, um, he came back to the UK and got the Body Shop Foundation and they all scuppered around and went to see the homeless organization and said, what about a street paper for London? And virtually all of the organizations that they touched base with said, no, no, you can't give homeless people money because what will happen is they'll spend it on drink and drugs and all that stuff. So he put it on the back burner. And then in 1991, I was working for a, an American publisher, he wasn't paying me, so I didn't have any money. So Gordon said, well, why don't you look at the street paper? Uh, why don't you do a feasibility study? And I said, all right, then I'll do a feasibility study. It can be 200 pounds a day. And he said, well, I'll, I'll give you 100. I said, all right, then. I'd have done it for 15 quid. I was so broke. So I started from self-interest, which I always think is the best place to start. I always think that entrepreneurism and all that is wonderful, but if it doesn't rock your boat, if you're not doing it for yourself first, how can you ever do it for anybody else? Mm. So I did my feasibility study, and I was astonished at the amount of homeless people, lots of them young, lots of them, you know, children almost, who uh, were saying, yeah, if you do a street paper, I'll sell it. It's better than begging. So I said, I gave my report to Gordon. I said, this would work. If you did it without any sentimental attachment to the homeless, if you didn't, if you didn't cry over them, they still leave them in the streets. All this sentimental moralization, I said, just look upon it as these people are people who need a hand up, not a hand out. Mm -hmm. 
And then about three or four months later, we started the big issue. Mm. So it's explicitly not a charity model. No. Not even a charity approach. No, I hated. Uh I had been for three years almost with the Sisters of Charity. Mm -hmm. They reminded me, I don't know if it was daily, but it was certainly often enough, that we were the children of failed people who were being supported by prosperous, hardworking members of the, the parish. Uh, so I've never liked charity. I've never liked do-goodism. All these homeless organizations were absolutely against the idea of John Anthony Bird, who had never done a degree in social upholstery or whatever mm-hmm. they called it. I had nothing. <laughs> I had no paperwork. I'd never volunteered for crisis. Oxford has the world's finest degree in social upholstery. Didn't yeah, you know that? I, I know, I know. But I, I never got me. <laughs> I, I, I did used to say later, I'm a, I'm a bit of a social upholsterer because I try and make the poor comfortable. But no, and, and they really didn't like me. It was a class thing. But, and I had to pull the rope on them when they started to say, well, you can't do that. I said, wouldn't it be brilliant Absolutely. I did it very loud. So am I allowed to speak a little bit louder? Mm-hmm. I said, wouldn't it be brilliant if a person who themselves had been homeless could run a homeless project rather than a person who had decided to help the homeless? And it comp- and the English are so obsessed with their class system. Oh, oh no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not a classist. I'm, I'm Let's let this little person in, in the same way as they've let me into the House of Lords. But this is a problem across the social sector, right, that we tend to focus on expertise that comes from um, high education and fancy degrees and analysis and technical expertise, often to the neglect of lived experience. And um, and I think that's a, that's a real problem, not just in Britain, but everywhere, and not just on homelessness, but on a whole variety of issues. What sorts of things did your life experience bring to you as you were starting to try to address this problem with the big issue? I think the first thing was a contempt. I just loathed the people who were giving me money to do my job because they were all kind of nice. And to me, life is horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And what you've got to do is you've got to be able to help people get out of their horribleness. The very first Big Issue magazine, which went on sale in 1991, posed a simple, provocative question on its cover. Why don't the homeless just go home? Nearly 30 years later, well over 200 million copies have been sold around the world. There's a big issue in Namibia, a big issue Taiwan, and over 100,000 people have benefited from being big issue vendors. Big Issue the magazine is a business, albeit with a social mission. It's complemented by the Big Issue Foundation, which helps connect vendors to other services and support that helps them transform their lives. The third leg in this stool is Big Issue Invest, which helps extend the mission by investing in social businesses and charities driving real change. They currently manage over £250 million in social investment funds and are on the front lines today supporting social enterprises struggling to survive the pandemic. This is a great example of how large-scale change happens. It's often not enough to scale up one product or service. It's about evolving and finding more leverage points to shift the system. 
In the case of the big issue, this has meant cultivating an ecosystem for change, all rooted in that original hand-up ethos. We often measure impact in figures, lives saved, kids in school, people employed. And that's a really good thing. But when I asked John Bird about the big issue's impact over nearly three decades, he touched on something deeper. The big issue could die tomorrow, but I can tell you we have transformed the homeless industry mm. or sector. And the reason for that is because now, if you're in a homeless hostel or something, people treat you as though you were a thinking human being. Mm -hmm. Before, they used to treat you as a patient. Mm -hmm. So 28 years ago, go over there and sit down there and we'll bring you a bit of food and we'll bring you a comb and you can comb your hair and you can wash your clothes over there and there you can sleep and here's a sandwich. Mm -hmm. All of that has gone. And now the homeless organizations have grown and they're very, very sophisticated, and they look at these people mm -hmm. as though they're individuals. And that, to me, is the, probably the greatest achievement of the big issue, irrespective of its political, social impact. Mm, that's really, really interesting. I think the the way that charity can sometimes uh, dehumanize or rob someone mm. of their of their dignity by objectifying objectifying them, and what you're really talking about is a process of of dignification. Yeah, um, well, in 1997, Tony Blair became the Prime Minister. And about a year after he came in, he stood there in front of a large audience saying, we live in an age of giving. And I was outraged. And I asked the Guardian, I said, can you give me space? And they gave me a full page. And I said in that, I said, look, if we live in the age of giving, doesn't that also mean we live in the age of taking? I said, have you ever been a taker. Tony Blair had never been a taker. All the people who ran charities had never been takers. Being a taker destroys you. If you are a taker, you never go anywhere. Mm. Taking is one of the biggest killers of social mobility and social opportunity. Only something like one and a half percent or two percent of people who were given social security and given social housing, their children will, only about 2%, will end up in higher education and further education. If you condemn people to social security, then you condemn them to the internal refugee camp. So do you think government is capable of addressing some of these entrenched problems of poverty and inequality, or does this have to come from outside government? Well, that takes me back to 2013. In 2013, I became really cheesed off, which is a very polite way of saying pissed off. Uh, <laughs> I got really cheesed off with people meet me and everywhere, and they said, oh, John, you're, you're brilliant. You think so clearly outside the box. And I thought, hang on, the only reason they're saying I'm thinking clearly outside the box is because the box is not working. So what are we going to do about the box? So then from 2013, I started to apply for the cross-bencher position in the House of Lords. So I applied for a system, and this is where Tony Blair really was thinking out of the box when he said that we needed these cross-benchers in the House of Lords to stop these kind of dinosaurs of the left and the right, 
So I became a people's peer, and he invented that system in 1999. I'm one of a couple of hundred. I think they let me in because they like the idea of making it look as though they're modern and, you know, but it doesn't actually add up to real change that we need in political society to, to get rid of the phobias that mm. run society. Yeah, this is something I want to dig into a little bit because it's, it's really fascinating to me, these moments when someone who spent their entire life agitating from the outside if you will, trying to disrupt the system and being an activist who suddenly has the opportunity to have a seat at the table inside the establishment or in the room where it happens, so to speak. Um, and uh, for you know, um, those of us not, not from the UK, we picture the House of Lords as being this quite uh, sort of elite, aristocratic, old boys kind of place. Um, what's it been like for you being, being a part of that? And have you found that you've been able to have the kind of impact that you wanted to when you set out to do this? Well, I went into the House of Lords to dismantle poverty. And when you go into the House of Lords or the, or the Commons, and I work with both of them, what they're really obsessed with is their projects. And I said, look, you deal with the people who are in the sticky stuff now. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of projects throughout the world for the people in the emergency. But there are very few people who are there to dismantle the problem. I'm here to prevent the next generation of big issue vendors. Do you hear me? And they were lost. 80% of all the social money spent in the world is spent on emergency. Very little on prevention, very little on cure. This is a system, a finely tuned system. And that's how we deal with poverty. We deal in this ecosystem of failure where every time in the year there's somebody falling down and we pick them up and falling them down and picking them up and falling them down and picking them up. Mm -hmm. But we don't ever say, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I really upset a number of doctors in the House of Lords and one of them stood up and said, uh, it's very, very important that we recognize that we don't have enough doctors in the NHS. And I stood up and said, is it a problem of not having enough doctors or is it that we have too many patients? We need some people saying, ah, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a really clever doctor and never see a patient in my life. I'm going to prevent people from becoming patients. Well, I'm a doctor and, and what I'm hearing from you is to say that when we've got a patient with a fever, it's not enough just to give the paracetamol for the fever. We need to understand what is the underlying cause of their disease upstream. in the first place, what's upstream. making them sick, and go upstream and treat the system, mm. not treat mm. the symptoms. And that's difficult. It's a lot more convenient to just focus on the symptoms. So let's talk about then how you're going to do that. How is it that you're going to prevent the next generation of big issue vendors and prevent poverty for the next generation? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that if you are treating people, whether it's in the States or in the UK as a doctor, you will find probably that people who have the most problems are the people with lower income. And one of the reasons they have, are of lower income is because they've done very unwell at school, they haven't done well at school. I know that in the prison system, I didn't do well at school, and 90% of us didn't do well at school. So if you take that, that the one thing that covers everybody is the failure of children at school. 
When you look at the United Kingdom, we fail 35% of our children at school. Mm. And that means that one in three then becomes that class of person who becomes 70% of government intervention. Mm -hmm. Government, local authorities, the House of Lords, the House of Commons, 70% of their activities are tied up with questions of the collateral damage done either directly by poverty or the collateral damage done by it. So we have to look on the fact that education is one of the biggest means by which we can break that vicious cycle. But then we have to attach, and that is where we need to put our energy. The problem with capitalism, it makes money out of crap. And it actually could make money out of good stuff. The first thing you would have to do to get rid of poverty is looking at what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then putting the full cost on allowing a child to move from poverty into school and fail and fail and fail and fail. And before you know it, they cost a million dollars. And then they move on. So we have to start doing those kind of very, very simple things. We then have to develop the methodology of doing something about parents who have no idea of the importance of education. I'll give you just one example, which is a very, very crude example of the power of education. And a load of people will ring you up and say, I'm totally wrong. But when Luba was the, the president of Brazil, he brought in something called family allowance. And what happened was, he brought in the allowance, and it was about $114 every month or something like that. And there were two strings. One of them that mum had to look after herself, because if she died or get ill, then the children went feral, and then shopkeepers and all that would pay somebody to kill them because they'd be doing shoplifting. The other was the child had to go to school. By this, they lifted in the region of two or three million people out of feral poverty. People don't understand that feral poverty is much worse than exploitative poverty. Feral poverty is when you get up in the morning and you don't know how you're going to feed your children. And therefore you have to prostitute one of them or you have to prostitute yourself or you have to steal or whatever. That's feral poverty. But the point is, until we embrace education, and embrace the fact, as I have to embrace the fact, that my children who have just who will join the workforce in 10 years' time, by the time they join the workforce, 60% of the jobs that they're going to be doing have yet to be invented. I've got a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old. So we are really going to have to grow up. This is the time for greatest consciousness. And it is a brilliant time to live. The unfortunate thing is we're spending all of our energies, all of our industries are towards entertainment and distraction. And actually we could turn that entertainment and distraction towards the common goals of educating our children and lifting them not just out of poverty, but also let's educate the middle classes not to be sloppy and silly and think that they've done their bit when they give a handout to a homeless person. We're in a wonderful world because we're either extinct or we're going places. 
John Byrd is on a mission to break us out of this stubborn cycle of reactive short-termism and instead focus on transforming systems for future generations. I asked Dr. Elizabeth Garrett, whose research focuses on homelessness, whether a systems approach is the way to go. I think it's a very valuable one and it's one that we do see sort of charities um, adopting themselves. So there's a charity in Oxford called Aspire, which aims to link up often young people. Some of them have formerly been in prison or have experiences of homelessness and it aims to sort of undertake work readiness with them um, and to try and match them up with appropriate roles within the city so that they can gain work experience and that hopefully sets people on the path for longer term independent living. And I think these more holistic approaches are going to be much more valuable than keeping someone in a hostel and feeding them three meals a day, which may well be needed at that point in their life, but obviously is not something that you would sort of seek to be maintaining for a longer period of time. Certainly the sort of perceived lack of interest in sort of structural concerns like, you know, are we building enough homes? Are we making sure that there is social housing are we making sure that housing is affordable, not necessarily by the government's measure, which is 80% of the rent of a home in that area, which is not truly affordable if you're a you know, a care worker or if you work as a, a cleaner in one of the Oxford colleges. If we put changes in place there, we might really influence people's likelihood of becoming homeless rather than sort of trying to dive in at the point where, where someone's already in crisis. Another thing that would be really valuable and actually quite cost effective is to consider early intervention, particularly for young people and children who've experienced um, traumatic events. So putting in place mental health support, we know that you know, in the generations of the participants that we interviewed, that wasn't really present. And now those services have really been stripped back again. Um, but being able to put in, you know, mental health support, whether that's a, a mental health nurse in schools to make sure that young people receive access to counselling or to sort of higher level services, if relevant, could really help those those people thrive and to build resilience that would put them on a better path um, for the future. Another thing we found in the project was that quite a large proportion of our participants had left home at a young age, but that seemed to really sort of disrupt people's ties with their families. And even though many of those people sort of moved out and lived in rented accommodation with a partner or had a job, they often seemed to be vulnerable to homelessness later on. And indeed, around a third of our sample had first been homeless as teenagers. So I think recognising that there's something in those family relationships that might cause vulnerability. We know that for many people who become homeless as teenagers, it's because the relationship between the teenager and the parents breaks down. And so mediation support may well be very valuable there. Um, we should acknowledge that it's not suitable in all situations, particularly um, in situations where there's abuse happening. And for some of our participants, they'd been on the receiving end of, of various forms of abuse, including quite significant violence for some of them. But any measure that might be able to sort of keep those family relationships going that enable young people to sort of stay within the family home for a little bit longer um, could be valuable in helping protect them from homelessness or even just delay it into a point where, you know, their first experience of homelessness might not be quite so catastrophic. In the early days of the lockdown here in the UK in response to the, the COVID pandemic, 
most folks who were living on the streets were taken off the streets and put into shelters and other sorts of things. And some folks prematurely did sort of a victory lap to say, look, we fixed the problem. We, we've ended homelessness. And of course, that's not the case. Shortly after that happened, Lord Bird published an open letter in the Telegraph saying now is the time to end rough sleeping for good, that this is the opportunity, that this is the year uh, for us to build on this initial step. Do you think that it's time and, and uh, do you think it's possible? I certainly think it's possible and I think one of the great things about the way that people understand homelessness is that it's sort of universally something people are concerned about. You know, the idea that you don't have a safe and secure home is unthinkable to so many and I think that has engendered a lot of sort of positive feeling and, you know, for huge numbers of volunteers actually sort of going out of their way to help or or alternatively to fundraise. So I think you know, perhaps now is a time when we're thinking so much about our homes and how we use them and whether they're quiet places or full of, you know, noisy children and people trying to get work done and are they safe and all of those considerations, I think is a, is a good time to sort of start those conversations again and start thinking about, you know, what does home mean? Is it a hostel? Is it a hotel room that's empty for a period of time? Or do we need to be looking at something much longer term and more sustainable for people's long term futures? This move to sort of very rapidly remove people who sleep rough from the streets and into sort of private spaces obviously is very well intentioned and I think would be expected to have significant sort of public health benefits. I think the worry though is that that is framed as we've solved homelessness and I've seen this on social media in the last few days of people saying oh look when the government tried we could solve homelessness and we we haven't solved it at all we've put people up in in sort of hotels we've got support workers who are you know working around the clock in very unusual circumstances to make sure that the people that they work with are getting their food and medicine and toiletries and things but that's not that's not an ordinary way of living that's not something that can be sustained into the future and so I think when perhaps the immediate crisis is over a lot of thought needs to be given to we could take people off the streets temporarily but you know now might be a good time to think about how we support homeless people longer term and have a longer term goal for them rather than saying, you know, you're in a hostel now until social housing becomes available, which could be years away. Um, so I think it is really important that we take a, a sort of longer term view rather than just seeing um, what we're doing now as a success, because it, it's a success only in quite limited ways. My thanks to Elizabeth Garrett and Lord John Bird. My name is Peter Drobak, and you've been listening to Reimagine a podcast series from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. I want to ask for your help today. The pandemic has created a crisis for big-issue street vendors. Unable to do their work with the lockdown in place, their only source of income has vanished. Please join me in supporting the Big Issue's emergency funding appeal. Go to bigissue.com or download the Big Issue app to read the latest issues. We're talking Ricky Gervais, Baby Yoda. It's a really good read. Next week, we have a very special episode. We'll be joined by former U.S. Vice President and Nobel Laureate Al Gore. Joining us from his home in Tennessee, Mr. Gore spoke to our students about COVID, climate, and how young people can turbocharge a sustainability revolution. 
Do you want to see things differently? Listen, review, and subscribe to Reimagine wherever you get your podcasts. And get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Drobak or email me at peter at reimaginepodcast.com. To learn more about the podcast and social entrepreneurship, visit reimaginepodcast.com. Thanks and stay safe.